Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to True North True Crime and part two of the Carissa Boudreaux case. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I would suggest that you do that now. Otherwise, this episode is not going to make a whole lot of sense. Okay, we still have a lot of ground to cover, so let's go ahead and jump right into part two. Yesterday, we told you about 12-year-old Carissa Boudreaux, who went missing on January 27, 2008, from Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. Carissa was last seen by her mother, Penny Boudreaux, after the two had gone on a drive together to have a heart-to-heart conversation after some trouble in their relationship since Carissa had moved in with Penny and Penny's boyfriend, Vernon McCumber. Penny said that she had last seen her daughter as she left her vehicle to head into the Sobeys grocery store to pick up a few items, and upon her return to the vehicle, Carissa was gone. After multiple searches, police still did not have many leads to go on. They had made the discovery of a pink crock on a snowbank alongside a rural road that matched the description of the footwear Carissa had been wearing that evening, but they were still waiting on the DNA evidence to come back from the lab. We're going to go ahead and jump right back into our timeline here. We left off after Penny had done her second press briefing in February of 2008, and the police knew that they had to up the ante if they wanted to uncover new leads in this case. On Saturday, February 9th, 2008, Detective Sergeant Scott Feener had the day off and was looking forward to a much-needed day of restoration. He had been working on Chris's case for the last 13 days straight. Around noon, Scott received a phone call. On the other end, a police dispatcher informed Scott a body had been found under the snow. Scott immediately got into his car and began calling the rest of the investigation team to inform them of the discovery. A nine-year-old boy and his mother had pulled over at a turnaround point on the side of Highway 331 because he needed to urinate. He found a spot where he was out of sight of the passing motorists when he saw frozen toes sticking out of the snow. The boy and his mother ran back up the highway where they flagged down another driver and the police were called. Upon the arrival of law enforcement, the scene was taped off and they closed the highway to traffic. As police made their way down the embankment, it was difficult to discern what they were looking at. 
Most of the body was covered in snow with just toes sticking out. Later, when asked to recall the scene, Detective Sergeant Scott Feener stated, It was a fluke of nature. The angle the boy was looking down, he could see the frozen toes sticking out of the snow. Had he been looking the other way, he would have seen nothing but snow. It wasn't long before residents of Bridgewater, as well as members of the media, caught on that something was going on on the highway. Penny and her aunt April entered the Pendleton Corner Store, which sits on Highway 331, to get some cigarettes. April asked the person at the front counter what was going on with all the first responders down the road. The owner told her, I think they found Carissa. Another customer overheard this conversation and gestured towards Penny while whispering, that's Carissa's mother. The owner was mortified and told Penny that she was so sorry. Penny's response shocked her. That's okay. We better head home in case someone is trying to call us. The owner was flabbergasted, expecting that the mother would be running over to the scene to find out immediately what was going on. Forensics and the medical examiner arrived on the scene. They observed a body that was covered in an inch of ice and snow, making it impossible to determine the sex of the individual. It did appear that the body had been there for some time, and it had rolled and come to a stop just before the river. There was no evidence of a struggle at the scene, which led investigators to believe that the victim had been killed elsewhere and dumped on the side of the highway. Other details in the forensic reports were as follows. A pink shirt was pulled up over the stomach, but still covered the breast area. A pair of Winnie the Pooh bear panties had been partially pulled down above the knees. The left leg was naked, while blue jeans covered the right leg. A bare left foot stuck up solid. A brown striped sock covered the right foot. Young Caucasian female, roughly five foot four, long brown hair. The medical examiner, Matt Bowes, noted that it appeared that the body had been placed there. It was no longer in rigor mortis, and it appeared that someone had moved the body after she had been killed and dumped it. He also noticed that there were swollen raised ligature marks around the girl's neck. He also surmised from the way that the clothes had been in disarray that whoever was responsible for her death had tried to make it look like a sexually motivated crime, but he was not convinced that that was the case. Law enforcement agreed to keep the details such as the positioning of the body, the way the clothes had been partially removed, as well as the cause of death from the public as they knew it would be crucial information that only the person responsible for her death would know. In the days after Carissa's body was located, the RCMP amped up their efforts as this case was now officially a homicide investigation. Immediately, they started surveillance on Penny and Vernon. Officers monitored the couple's home at 220 Jubilee Road, 24 hours a day. On Monday, February 11, 2008, the neighbors underneath Penny and Vernon's apartment heard a commotion coming from the unit above them. They called the police to report the sounds of things being thrown and screaming coming from Vernon. The neighbors stated that they heard him telling Penny he was leaving her and, quote, how could she do this, and that he was disgusted with her and that she had got him, quote, involved. Sergeant Al Cunningham reported to the apartment and a very intoxicated Vernon stepped out of the unit. Cunningham removed Vernon from the premises, deciding that a few hours to sober up at the station would improve the situation. Cunningham recalls Vernon being very emotional, angry, and crying, and saying things like, I'm nothing if she's gone, and I want to help Carissa. I want justice for Carissa. 
Now, on that same day, which would be Monday, police asked Penny if she would be willing to do a reenactment of her day with Carissa on January 27th, hopeful that retracing her steps might bring up more information or memories. The reenactment was consistent with Penny's initial statements given to the police. But what stood out to the officers was as they were leaving the Sobeys store, just as Penny had on January 27th, a big picture of Carissa was visible above the exit doors, and Penny showed no reaction to seeing it. Penny also didn't ask investigators about their investigation at all that day. She didn't question when the body would be identified, and at times that day, she was even laughing. Yet another call came into police that night to complain about noise coming from Penny and Vernon's apartment. This time, from their next-door neighbor, who allegedly heard a man having an emotional conversation with someone over the phone. The phone call was heard only from one side, and this is what the neighbor said they heard. Bubby, they are coming to get me. Get me out of here, Bubby. She didn't want her kid. Fuck life. I'm going to get far, far away. She fucking killed her kid. I know it. She did it. I wasn't there. She fucking did it. I want rid of her and her aunt. She fucking did it, Bubby. She fucking did it to her own daughter. I gotta get out of here. I don't give a fuck about her or her kid. Police's suspicions were now confirmed that Penny and Vernon were prime suspects in the murder of Carissa Boudreaux. They quickly mobilized and got warrants to seize and search both Penny's car as well as the apartment. They also believed that they had reasonable grounds due to the neighbor's statement of the overheard conversation to arrest Penny and Vernon on Valentine's Day 2008. But while they waited for the arrest warrant paperwork to be completed, the autopsy of Carissa Boudreaux was held on February 13, 2008. They were able to identify Carissa using dental records and concluded that the cause of death was asphyxiation from strangulation. They were unable to find any injuries to her genitals that would be suggestive of a sexual assault. On the morning of February 14, 2008, the police called Penny, Vernon, as well as Penny's aunt, April, to ask them to come into the station as they had an update regarding the investigation. As soon as the three arrived, they were separated and brought into interview rooms. Police were eager to see who, if anyone, would crack first. Police informed each of them that they were able to identify the body found on the side of the highway as Carissa. Police then arrested Penny and Vernon, but did not arrest April. Penny immediately asked for a lawyer, and police honed in on Vernon, identifying him as the weaker of the two and more likely to be forthcoming with information. But after hours of grilling Vernon, he gave up nothing. Meanwhile, in a neighboring interview room, Penny was just as tight-lipped. She didn't even ask how her daughter died, nor did she deny involvement when the officer suggested that she had something to do with it. A search of Penny's vehicle and the apartment was conducted while Penny and Vernon were in custody. Items that were seized included a digital camera that had a photo of Carissa's knockoff pink Crocs, which matched the one that they found on the snowbank. They also came across a series of notes written by Penny to Vernon, which read, All I know is that I love you both, but you come first. You are the most important person or thing in the world to me. You are my whole world. My sole purpose for living is to build a life and memories with you. While Penny and Vernon were detained, police put undercover officers in both of their holding cells in another attempt to coax incriminating evidence out of them. 
Their plan failed, but in Vernon's case, the undercover officer told him that he could offer him some work on the outside, and Vernon seemed keen on that idea. Also on February 14, 2008, police provided media with the update that they had been waiting for, that the body located on Highway 331 was indeed that of Carissa Boudreau. They confirmed that they were considering her death a homicide and that it was now a criminal investigation. One reporter asked how Carissa had died, but the police refused to answer. They also didn't answer when asked if there was any sign of sexual assault or if they had any suspects. But when asked if the residents of Bridgewater were at risk, the response was, The investigators feel this is an isolated incident, and I would suggest Bridgewater is a pretty safe community most of the time. Unfortunately, the police did not have enough to charge Penny or Vernon, and after 24 hours in custody, they were released at 9.45 a.m. on February 15, 2008. The community of Bridgewater was devastated by the news that Carissa had not only been located deceased, but that she was the victim of a homicide. The principal of Carissa's school, Bridgewater Elementary, brought in a crisis team to be there for the students as well as the teachers. All that the people of Bridgewater knew regarding who had committed such an atrocity was that the police had questioned two people who were known to Carissa in connection with the murder. A local owner of a sign business, Nadine Sardi, decided to build a sign to place at the location where Carissa's remains were located. The sign was five feet tall with a long-stemmed rose, including a photo of Carissa in the bud of the flower. After they placed it next to the highway, heartbroken residents began placing teddy bears at the foot of the sign. People gathered at the spot to honor Carissa's memory and try to comfort one another. Nadine did her best to keep the teddy bears pristine, but the weather was making things difficult, so she decided to build a shelter for them. Moved by Nadine's actions, a man who worked at a hardware store paid for everything that she would need. Nadine eventually came up with the idea to donate the teddy bears to children who had been affected by trauma to give them something to hug. She called them Carissa's Bears. A local laundromat, Mr. Suds, washed all 752 bears free of charge before they were all packed into boxes and sent to various places across Canada, including women's shelters and fire halls. On Tuesday, February 19, 2008, Carissa's funeral was held. Nearly 400 people showed up to pay their respects, way more than the venue could hold. The reverend, who knew Carissa well after years of Sunday school, had a difficult time with his eulogy. Part of the eulogy was, quote, This afternoon we are in the midst of confusing thoughts and emotions. Every one of us, it's safe to say, is asking why. No human sense or reason can be found in the fact that such a young, beautiful, energetic life could be snatched away so quickly before its hopes and plans had even begun to be realized. After the service was over, Penny and Vernon snuck out a side door without thanking the mourners who showed up. While Carissa's funeral was being held, the police were busy cooking up a new plan of attack. It was decided by the RCMP that they would employ a tactic known as a Mr. Big Sting. A Mr. Big Sting is a law enforcement strategy employed in undercover operations, typically for serious criminal investigations. In this approach, undercover officers create a fictional crime organization. They then strategically approach the target suspect, gradually building a relationship and gaining their trust by presenting themselves as members of this fictitious criminal group. 
Over time, as the relationship develops, the suspect may be subtly coerced or manipulated into confessing or providing information about their involvement in a real, ongoing criminal case. The intention is to create a scenario in which the suspect believes they are joining a powerful criminal entity and, to gain acceptance or prove their loyalty, they have to divulge incriminating details. Mr. Big Stings are believed to have originated in the 1980s in Kelowna, British Columbia, by a police officer who was curious how far he could push the law. It is still a very controversial strategy today and is illegal in many parts of the world, including the USA. The undercover officer who would play a big role in this Mr. Big Sting was known as UC Steve or Undercover Steve. His role was a major mobster who ran the East Coast side of operations for a Montreal-based gang. He was a big guy with a mustache, a goatee, a ponytail, and he disliked kids. Their first target was going to be Vernon. He was the easier mark in police's minds. But while the police were waiting for authorization to begin the sting, another discovery was made. It was February 25th, 2008, when a man discovered something unusual in a trash can at a playground on Jubilee Road. It was another pink crock. He called his find into police who showed up and dumped out the rest of the contents of the trash can where they found the pink crock, a black hoodie, and a black vest all matching the description of what Carissa had been wearing on the day of her disappearance. On that same day, February 25th, 2008, first responders were called to 220 Jubilee Road in response to a female patient who had taken an overdose of sleeping pills. That patient was Penny Boudreau. This attempt to end her own life was unsuccessful and she recovered in hospital. Meanwhile, Vernon drowned his sorrows in alcohol, and during a trip to a liquor store, he happened to run into the undercover officer who had been placed in the holding cell with him, the same person who promised him a job. This meeting was anything but a coincidence and had been meticulously planned by law enforcement. Vernon approached the officer, and the two exchanged phone numbers with the promise of following up at a later date. Vernon called his new friend the very next day and was introduced to UC Steve, the boss of the so-called delivery operation. Vernon and Steve spent the next three months working days and nights together. UC Steve seemed to impress Vernon with his brand new pickup truck and piles of cash, and the two became close friends rather quickly. Steve told Vernon that the job would initially be small delivery jobs, but as Vernon proved himself trustworthy and capable, he'd start being given more important jobs, and most importantly, more money. These jobs entailed moving fictitious illegal goods, as well as counting the money they earned. On March 2, 2008, Penny and Vernon were notified that they needed to be out of their apartment at 220 Jubilee Road after multiple noise complaints had been made by their neighbors. Vernon was devastated by this and confided in Steve that he planned on breaking up with Penny and moving to Halifax. Later, Steve would recall that Vernon was struggling with being accused of having anything to do with Carissa's murder and that he would often cry because he missed her. Vernon also confided in Steve that he only trusted two people in the world, his lawyer and UC Steve. The two would attend parties with other members of this fake crime gang, pulling Vernon deeper and deeper into this fictitious world and also deepening his bond with Steve. Eventually, in late March 2008, Penny and Vernon both moved to Halifax but had separate apartments. Their relationship seemed to be on the rocks. 
but an escape to a larger city gave them both room to breathe. They weren't as recognizable in Halifax. On Tuesday, April 1st, 2008, Vernon got a call from his lawyer who happened to read about the police tactic of using Mr. Big Stings and warned him to be careful. Immediately, Vernon told his new buddy UC Steve about his lawyer's warning. And Steve very quickly responded, If you would fall for something as stupid as that, you can get the fuck out of my truck right now. Vernon told Steve that he would never fall for anything like that, but just wanted Steve to be aware so that they could watch out for each other. April 16th, 2008 was the day that Vernon was introduced to a man who was higher up in the fake crime syndicate. This man also attempted to get Vernon to admit to being involved with Carissa's death, but Vernon stuck to the same story he had been giving all along. This time, though, he admitted that he did suspect Penny had something to do with it, but he couldn't prove it. It was decided that they needed to pull Penny into the sting, and they were going to use Vernon to do it. So during a party on May 1st, 2008, UC Steve answered a phone call from a higher up who wanted to talk to Vernon, so he passed the phone to him. The man on the phone told Vernon that they needed a woman and wanted him to recruit Penny for the job. Vernon was initially hesitant as he was sure Penny would decline the offer, fearful of attracting more attention to herself. It took a few days of arguing, but eventually Vernon was able to persuade Penny to join. After a few weeks, Penny began doing small jobs for the group and deepened her relationship with an undercover officer who went by UC Karen. Vernon was offered a promotion that would move him and Penny into a house in Moncton, New Brunswick. Steve even provided the couple with a safety deposit box that contained $40,000 cash to prove he was serious. At the end of May 2008, the police were planning their final setup, a meeting between Mr. Big himself and Penny Boudreau. It would take place at the Radisson Hotel in Halifax. Penny and Vernon knew the importance of this meeting and were told that this man was capable of making all of their problems with law enforcement go away. Upon entry to the impressive hotel suite, Vernon and Steve were asked to leave so Mr. Big could speak with Penny alone. An entire team of police watched the meeting from an adjacent hotel room via hidden cameras and microphones as the two began their conversation. Mr. Big explained that he was the leader of the crime syndicate and that he could help her, but she needed to be 100% honest with him and if she wasn't willing to do so, she could leave. Penny began by sharing that she was deeply in love with Vernon and that her child had been getting in the way of her relationship with him. She also claimed that Vernon had given her an ultimatum. It was him or Carissa. She continued by going through the events of January 7th, 2008. This time, the actual version. The details of the drive and their argument remained similar, but the story changed upon their arrival at the Sobeys parking lot. Penny went into the store, and before she came out, she called Vernon to inform him that she could not find Carissa, who was still alive and sitting in the passenger seat of her red Dodge Neon. When Penny returned to the vehicle, she put her groceries in the trunk, pulled a piece of twine out from where it had been stashed, and shoved it into her jacket pocket. Penny told Mr. Big that Carissa kept asking to get out of the vehicle, so Penny intentionally drove to William Hebb Road, knowing it was a desolate area. This time, when Carissa asked to get out, Penny let her. She explained that she could not let her go back and tell people what a terrible mom she was. It was at this point that they both exited the vehicle. Penny recalls it being snowy, dark, and slippery when she tackled her daughter who fell onto her back. 
Carissa said, Mommy, don't, as Penny used her knee to pin her daughter to the ground before removing the piece of twine from her pocket, putting it around Carissa's neck, and pulling in a crisscross motion as hard as she could until she felt Carissa stop breathing. She said Carissa's eyes were bulging, her tongue was stuck between her teeth, and there was foam coming from her mouth as she desperately tried to fight for air. Penny was emotionless as she continued, sharing that she placed her daughter's body in the footfall of the passenger seat of the vehicle. She then drove around with her daughter's corpse, unsure what to do next. First, she drove to the spot known as the turnaround and dragged Carissa's body, subsequently resulting in her pants being pulled down and her sock coming off. Penny then removed Carissa's hoodie and vest and left her daughter with just a t-shirt on. She remarked to Mr. Big that it looked as though someone had sexually assaulted her before she rolled her body down the embankment. Penny got back into the car and drove to the playground where she disposed of the remaining crock, the hoodie, and the black vest. Penny finished by telling Mr. Big that the thought of losing Vernon was harder than the thought of losing Carissa. Mr. Big then asked Penny to physically reenact the way she had killed Carissa, as well as write her recollection of events so nothing was missed. Penny complied. The police in the adjacent room were so disturbed by what they had heard that UC Steve had to go be sick in the bathroom. They had done it. They had everything they needed to get Carissa and her family the justice they all deserved. We're now going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. On Friday, June 13th, 2008, UC Steve and Vernon took a drive to Point Pleasant Park, where they sat and watched the waves hit the rocks. Steve knew that their time together was coming to a close, and that Vernon was about to realize that he had been betrayed. The undercover team was satisfied that Vernon had nothing to do with Carissa's murder, nor did he know that Penny was the one responsible. This was lent even more credence when Mr. Big took Penny for a drive to retrace her steps on the evening of January 27, 2008, and Penny asked him not to tell Vernon what she had told him. UC Steve felt bad for Vernon, and after they spent a while chatting at Point Pleasant Park, he hugged Vernon goodbye, knowing full well that this would be the last time he would talk to him. Later that same day at a Costco parking lot, police descended and arrested Penny Boudreaux. 
They told her she was being arrested for the murder of her daughter, Carissa, and proceeded to read her her charter rights. Penny spent that night alone in a holding cell, and the first thing the next morning, her interrogation began. Penny denied everything, up until the officers brought in a laptop and played back the recorded confession she had made to the so-called crime boss in the suite of the Radisson. Penny slumped in her seat and started sobbing as she watched the undeniable evidence that she had given play out on a screen in front of her. She knew it was over, and when law enforcement asked Penny to write a letter to Carissa to secure the confession would stand up in court, she did. No one other than the investigators has ever read this letter. Police notified members of Carissa's family that they had arrested Penny Boudreaux and charged her with murder, and their reaction was disbelief and shock. That same day, police held a last-minute press briefing where they confirmed to the public that they had arrested Penny Patricia Boudreaux and that she would answer to the charge of first-degree murder in court on June 16, 2008. More than 100 people showed up at the courthouse that day, keen to get their eyes on the mother who was capable of murdering her own child. The town of Bridgewater was devastated and wanted Penny to feel their wrath. They wouldn't get much of a view, though, as the van dropped Penny off at the back door of the courthouse and she was quickly ushered inside. Many of Carissa's family members were present that day, including her father Paul, his brother Shane, Carissa's step-aunt Chastity, Vernon, and Penny's parents, who had driven more than two hours to hear the charges against their daughter. Penny cried as she kept her head down during the arraignment that lasted no longer than five minutes. She was charged with first-degree murder before being escorted outside, where she was met with a hostile crowd who shouted child killer and murderer at her. While Penny awaited trial during the summer of 2008, she was held at CNSCF, or the Central Nova Scotia Correctional Facility. From the start, Penny was a target at the prison. Not only was she a child killer, but she had murdered her own child. That same summer was when Carissa was supposed to be graduating the sixth grade, and although she didn't technically finish the school year, Paul and Shane Boudreau were invited to accept Carissa's diploma in her place. The local police also wanted to do something in memory of Carissa Boudreau and opted to buy books that featured Carissa's favorite thing, animals, and donate them to local elementary schools. The Crown prosecutors in this case, Paul Scoville and Denise Smith, knew that they had a very strong case against Penny and would likely be able to convince a jury that she was guilty of first-degree murder. They had a videotaped confession from Penny and the fact that many parts of this crime were clearly deliberate and planned. Examples of that are Penny called Vernon from Sobeys letting him know that Carissa had already disappeared when she was alive and well inside the vehicle, and Penny deliberately grabbing the piece of twine from the trunk with the intention of using it to end her daughter's life. The defense lawyer, Pat Atherton's goal was to get his client the least amount of time behind bars as possible. He ordered a mental health assessment for Penny, which came back with the result of her not having suffered a mental disorder at the time of the crime, which was unhelpful to their case. There was discussion as early as November of 2008 in regards to Penny pleading guilty to the lesser charge of second-degree murder. But on Thursday, December 4th, 2008, Penny's defense team confirmed that it was her wish to be tried by judge and jury. Judge Stewart set the date for the trial to commence, January 30th, 2009, almost exactly one year to the date that Penny murdered her daughter. January 30th, 2009 was a Friday. The atmosphere outside the courthouse in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia was tense. Media trucks were parked nose to tail on the street, 
and reporters were jostling for the best vantage points. Penny entered the courtroom wearing a dark t-shirt and a large cross pendant necklace. She carried a tissue in her shackled hands. Once everyone was seated and the courtroom quieted down, Penny's defense lawyer stood and declared that his client wished to plead guilty to the lesser offense of second-degree murder. The courtroom remained silent, but uncomfortable shuffling could be heard as it seemed everyone leaned forward in their seats, eager to hear what was going to happen next. Judge Stewart requested Penny to stand as he asked her the following questions. Do you understand that by pleading guilty to this charge of second-degree murder, you are giving up your right to a trial on this charge? Penny said yes. Do you admit that you killed Carissa? Yes. Do you admit that when you killed her, you intended that she die? Yes. It was then time for the prosecution to read out victim impact statements on behalf of Carissa's family and loved ones. The first one read was from her father, Paul Boudreau. These quotes again come directly from the book Mommy Don't by Sherry Aikenhead. Here's Paul's statement. The first second of Carissa's life in the world was the most incredible experience of my life. I stayed by her side from birth until the end. My life with Carissa has been the focal point of my happiness from the time I realized the huge bond between us when she first began to speak, saying, I love you, Daddy, to talking about the problems of becoming a teenager. I had dreams of being a part of many big things that Carissa had the potential to be. There were dreams of spending retirement with grandchildren. Now, all of those dreams are gone. The center of my happiness is shattered, and hopes and dreams wiped away in one selfish act. Carissa was loved by her family, and we were also proud of her accomplishments and her personality. Now I have to look into their eyes and see the deep sorrow and emptiness for a person that used to bring so much excitement and joy. My community, friends, and co-workers have all been crushed by this senseless act. The next victim impact statement, we are again quoting from the book, Mommy Don't. Now, this was from Carissa's Aunt Chastity, who was representing the rest of the Boudreaux family. It reads as follows. Thank you for allowing my family to present their statements in court today. I have chosen to speak because I owe it to the importance of Carissa's memory, and I want Penny, who may not understand the magnitude of the loss she has inflicted on me and my entire family, to hear how all of my family has been affected by this new, unwanted, and unrealistic role that has been forced upon us all. A role that can be better described as a nightmare. There are no words to describe what our family and I have endured over the past year. Shock, denial, hurt, and helplessness are just some of the emotions that come to mind. We strive each day to ask the pointless question, why? but rather focus on what good can come of this senseless act of violence. Carissa's presence was always felt when she walked into a room. She could strike up a conversation with anyone and was known for her sense of humor and her ability to talk. Her life was taken as a result of the choices that were made. Compassion is a word commonly used for and by a defendant. However, I ask, how much compassion did Penny consider when the decision was made to murder Carissa? Carissa was handed a death sentence, and we've been handed a life sentence. The judge then invited Penny to address the court, which she did, by simply saying, I'm sorry, before sitting back down. The judge had harsh words for Penny before she delivered her sentence. Again, this is quoted from the book, Mommy Don't. The judge states, 
Surely, Penny Boudreau, you can never call yourself mother in conjunction with Carissa's name again. And the words, Mommy Don't, from your trusting and loving Carissa, are there to haunt you for the rest of your natural life. The judge asked Penny to stand once again before saying, Penny Patricia Boudreau, I sentence you to imprisonment for life. Eligibility for consideration for release on parole will not occur until you have served 20 years from the date of your arrest. Miss Boudreau, I am required by the criminal code to tell you this. You have been found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to imprisonment for life. You are not eligible for parole for 20 years until June 14, 2028. However, after serving at least 15 years of your sentence, you may apply under what is known as the Faint Hope Clause. This will give you a reduction in the number of years of imprisonment without the eligibility for parole. If the jury hearing your application, should you make one, reduces the period of parole ineligibility, you may then apply for parole under the Corrections and Conditional Relief Act at the end of that reduced period. The judge then turned to the bailiff and stated, you may remove the offender. Vernon McCumber did not attend court on January 30th, 2009, and any hope Penny had of a last glimpse or a goodbye was dashed. The man she considered more important than the life of her own daughter was a no-show. Vernon did sit down for an on-camera interview for CTV Atlantic, and we'll play a portion of that interview for you now. Tell me a little bit about your feelings around this whole issue of what people think of you. And by that I mean there is a public perception that Mm -hmm. you must have known or you must have played a part in Carissa's murder. I know, it it was very hurtful. I mean, it just, I was devastated myself. It broke my heart. Especially, you know, to have a a terrible thing like this happen, you know, it just was hard on me. People thought I'd I'd done something, and I had to live with that, you know. Even with the work, I had to leave Bridgewater because people had their opinions about me. And I've had it affected me trying to get a job as well down here. You know, every time I I applied for a place or something, they, they always, they knew about what went on, and they had their own decision about that, right? So I had a hard time getting work as well. And it's just been, uh, I couldn't say anything, I couldn't, uh, couldn't talk to anybody, you know, because, um, you know, I wasn't, you know, wasn't allowed to talk about it. And just to go through that alone was just a nightmare. Do, do you understand, though, maybe why people might have had that perception or why the community maybe had those feelings? I can see, I can see how it would affect them, too. But, you know, I'd like to, I'm, I'm the type of person I don't judge, you know, I'd be careful how I judge, you know because you can be so wrong about somebody. And that happens a lot. So so talk a little bit more about what happened to you. I mean, uh, when this all happened, I mean, of course, I mean, anybody, I mean, I drank. I mean, that's the only way I could cope with it. I mean, I hit, you know, I started drinking a lot. I mean, and that's what I did to survive. You know, I'm going for, you know, I had to get some help with that. And it's just, you know, to have people think bad of you when you didn't do anything, going through the whole thing. Except you were living with the mother of this child. Yeah, and living with Penny, you know, if she tells you that it didn't do nothing, you got to try to believe somebody, right? I mean, you got to at least be there for them, you know. I mean, you just can't, you know, walk away from them, especially her going through this, and I believed her. Do you remember the news conference? Because I remember your face at the news conference. Mm -hmm. You almost looked as though you were... um 
you were in disbelief or shock. You had, it was. I thought you had a very strange look on your face. It, it was. It was just, I just didn't know what to do. I was just, it was just such a horrible nightmare that was, it was like a bad dream unfolding. And I just didn't know what to do, you know, to be there for Penny and the rest of the family too, you know, but you felt that the eyes were on you, you know, and, and that's the way I felt though, that they were looking at me like I've done something. But why did you tell her to make that choice? You said, you know, it's either Carissa or me. No, actually I didn't. Actually, I said, because they were fighting quite a bit. And I asked them, you know, you have to do something about this is not a productive family when they're arguing and fighting. And I could come home and hear them screaming and hollering, right, as I was coming up the stairs. So I knew the, you know, and I was new in their family. So I thought, well, when we all sit down, we're going to see a counselor or something. That's what I wanted to, you know, because to show a kid that, because she's going through a rough time where the divorce was, right? So, you know, that's, and that's why I mentioned that. Something had to be done with their fighting because it got, it got so it was destruct, not constructive of the family, right? Mm -hmm. It was just all the time in the mornings and, you know, and I'd come home and hear them arguing. And so that's basically what it was about. So when you were sitting beside her that day in the news conference, Marissa, I just want to tell you, you really didn't know, you had no idea No, I had no point. idea. I had no idea. I just believed her. I really was in love with Penny. You know, I fell in love with her and, and Carissa too. I mean, she was a sweetheart. She always used to make me laugh. Who, Carissa did? Yeah, she did. She always made me laugh. She'd wait, hear my feet coming up the stairs when I'd come in. She open the door, 11 o'clock, she'd go, boo. And I said, they took two years <laughs> off my life, right? But she was, you know, just a kid, typical kid, you know, typical 12-year-old. There's also stories about the two of you partying, no, doing uh, drugs, drinking, you but, know. Uh, the, well, now I had a beer after work. I mean, I love to sit down after work and have a beer or two, but as far as the partying and stuff like that, that's not true. That's far from the truth. If we were drinking, it was to drink your sorrels. I mean, cause, because you just couldn't deal with it. For you? For me. So you were drinking quite heavily during that time? Oh, absolutely. I hit the, yeah, I, I drank really hard. And it's just the scene that, you know, because I was just trying to stay numb. Because it was so hard to, this whole situation. You really can't, unless you've been there. You go through it yourself and then you realize, you know, the tragedy of it. You know, now her mother. That's a tragedy there. It's a nightmare. Were you scared? Oh, terrified. Absolutely. Nothing worse than having somebody think that you harmed a child or, or the police, you know, blaming you for that. You know, I know they had to get to the truth, but that's a terrifying feeling. I took a lot of heat. It seemed to me I was getting, uh, you know, I got most of the flack. You know, everybody was, oh, he had to do something, you know, or always like this, never maybe understanding my feelings, what I was going through. And I'm not just about myself here, but, you know, it's the truth what I was going through, you know, and that's the way I felt. You paid quite a price, as I understand it. You said even your family turned away yeah, from you. Yeah, there was uh, even family members and friends, you know, co-workers that even thought, you know what I mean? And uh, I was alone, but I knew in my heart that God knows my heart and knew I'd done nothing. You know, he knew that. And it was, uh, but I was the only one just seemed like, you know, it was only me and God that knew the truth, you know, and it says, I just can't explain that, you know, how that made me feel, and see, and not only that, I mean, I cared for the family, their father, and see their, them hurt, their broken hearts, and I know how much they love that child, too, to see them go through this, too, was even hard for me to watch them, you know, and even knowing they may look at me a little different. 
So how did the, so how did it come undone then? How did her story unravel, and and how did it well, end up to be where we are now? I just I just felt you know I just felt something was not right though. You felt something in your gut. Yeah, in your in your stomach. You just felt deep down that there was something wrong, and uh, you know it wasn't just right. And I think other people felt that too. You know they can feel something. It just wasn't like a normal grieving person should be acting like, especially losing their daughter, right? And at that point, what did you do? I mean, I was I was having mixed feelings about it myself. I didn't. You wanted to be there for somebody, but yet you didn't want to be around them, you know, because if they, you know, feeling that they done something like but that. But did you call police? Well, I've talked. Like I've cooperated with the police from the very beginning. But did you tell the police? I have a feeling. You know, this is well, just yes. my sense. Well, I, I did tell them that. I I did uh, actually tell them that in the interview. I even went in and said, I feel something's just not right, you know, and I told them how I felt. I mean, I'm going to tell the truth, you know, and they said, you know, and I did. I, you know, told them whatever I could to help them, you know, it was always uh, forward. Always tried to help them until they started looking at me and accusing me, and I can't cooperate then. I mean, I got, you know, I was scared to death for myself, you know. And you offered to take a lie detector test. Yes, I did. Yeah, I offered, they asked me if I'd take one, and I said, sure. And I called them up a couple of days later because they were going to arrange it, and all of a sudden they changed their mind. They didn't want me to take a lie detector test. So at what point did you know that she'd murdered Carissa? Like, when was that very clear? I, I, I actually, it wasn't clear until I heard uh, her confession. I mean, I thought, I knew that in my heart there were some things that, you know, I didn't, you know, that made me question, but I really, I gave her the benefit of doubt. How do you feel about talking today? I'm glad to be able to... I finally be able to talk and you know and have my you know have my say as well you know just to tell them what I've been through that it wasn't easy here it was no picnic for anybody and uh, and tell the family too how much I you know I'm so sorry for them you know see their pain that they went through will you ever be able to see them and tell them yourself do you think? I hope so yes yeah. I, I hope so that I can tell them that because I really do from my heart I feel for them you know, they've been all through this too, you know. Have you been to Carissa's memorial site? I haven't, well, I wasn't able to go because people thought that I had something involved with this and I couldn't even go to the memorial, you know, until this was uh, settled, you know. This is, you know, like I said, I didn't want any confrontations with anybody and, you know, people are entitled to their opinion, but I may not be right, but. Will you do that? Do you think you'll visit the site? Absolutely. Yeah, that's going to be my first agenda, actually, is to go and, and uh, take one of her bears to uh, to the site that she gave me. So That was the, the bear? Well, I gave her a bear called Teddy. Uh, I have her, she drew me a, like a crayon, you know, thanking me for giving her the bear, because I said I had a bear, and I said it needs a home, right? Well, she thought it was great. She called it Paws. Do you know yeah. how some, sometimes... It, People say, you know, things happen for a reason. Can you see any reason? No. I don't know. This was avoidable. It shouldn't have happened. If I had went that day, maybe I would have, uh, you know, I feel guilty sometimes. And if I had just insisted to go, it should have been okay, right? But I had no idea. It would be the last time I see her.
October 16, 2017 is when Penny Boudreaux first began to apply for day parole from the Nova Institute for Women in Truro, Nova Scotia. The facility is considered medium minimum security and allows inmates to live independently in their units with their own bedrooms and common areas. The women share the household responsibilities such as cooking and cleaning, and this is all to prepare them for the shift back into society come their eventual release dates. Penny wanted to be granted day passes to attend church, considered a pass for personal development. According to the parole board, Penny had improved since her incarceration, having completed multiple correctional programs for self-management. Penny explained to the board that at the time of Carissa's murder, she was still suffering from the loss of her own mother to suicide and had felt desperate to be a perfect mother to Carissa. She didn't know how to fix her relationship with her daughter and admitted she didn't harbor typical maternal feelings for her. Penny said she had learned the importance of asking for help during her time at the Nova Institution. They considered her in the low range of risk to reoffend, and her request for day passes was granted. Penny would be allowed to leave the Nova Institute four times per year, accompanied by two corrections officers for church visits. Needless to say, the reaction of the family members and the community of Bridgewater was that of shock, appall, and rage. Penny had just served 10 years of her life sentence, and she was already being given a taste of freedom. Members of the family who had given victim impact statements at the sentencing hearing weren't even given a heads up by the parole board of their decision and were forced to find out through the media. In the last six years, Penny Boudreaux has been given many day passes, mostly to attend church. In September of 2023, she was allowed to visit an ailing prison chaplain who was said to be a mentor and spiritual guide to Penny. The community continues to voice its opposition to these temporary releases each time they happen, but their voices seemingly fall on deaf ears. Penny Patricia Boudreaux will be able to apply for full parole in June of 2028. However, even if she is granted that parole, she will be under strict restrictions for the rest of her life. When Paul Boudreaux was asked by Crime Beat in 2020 if he would ever forgive his ex-girlfriend for her actions, he said, quote, Ever since this happened, she's never faced any of us. I want her to look me in the eye and tell me that she's rehabilitated and should be out starting a life over again. If she can give me one good reason why she thinks that should happen and why she should be out, I won't argue. But I guarantee you that's not going to happen. The murder of Carissa Boudreaux left a lasting mark on the town of Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. On the first anniversary of Carissa's death, over 200 people showed up to a candlelit vigil where mourners were asked to donate to the Shade Tree Animal Shelter on the outskirts of Bridgewater in honor of Carissa's deep love for animals. The police who handled Carissa's case were also deeply impacted in the aftermath. A former constable by the name of Christine Bonnell recalled being assigned to Penny Boudreaux in the immediate days and weeks following Carissa's disappearance. She doesn't remember Penny showing any emotion, but she does recall Carissa's grandfather falling to the ground in tears, which in turn made her cry alongside him. When the truth of how Carissa died came to light, the constable had to seek out mental health support, knowing she had looked after the woman responsible. 
You see, Steve, who was also deeply impacted by his involvement in the Mr. Big Sting, took his family to Carissa's memorial, where her body was recovered, to pay their respects. You see, Steve and Vernon have never been in contact again, but you see, Steve does believe that he accidentally ran into Vernon in a lineup at a coffee shop in 2013. While he didn't make eye contact with Vernon, he believes Vernon spotted him as he quickly walked away from his spot in line and left the cafe. You see, Steve is still an undercover officer, and we thank him for his great work on this case and so many others. Denise Nickerson, who we introduced in episode one as one of Carissa's first best friends, carried the memory of Carissa across the stage with her as she graduated high school in June of 2014. She recalled thinking that Carissa should have been there graduating with the rest of her class. Those were her people. On that day, during a drive in their car, Denise was listening to the radio when Bubbly by Colby Calais came on, Carissa's favorite song, one she sang constantly. Denise was so overcome with emotion that she had to pull the car over and call her mom. She was convinced that it was Carissa right there in the car with her. Vernon McCumber has kept a low profile in the years since Carissa's murder and Penny's sentencing. His close friend says he hasn't heard from Vernon in over a decade when Vernon looked at him and said, if you don't see me tomorrow, you won't see me for a long time. And Vernon stuck to his word. That was 12 years ago, and his friend hasn't seen him since. His close contacts believe that he went to Ontario to escape the publicity that the case brought. Some of the people interviewed for the book Mommy Don't believe that Vernon was just as much of a victim of Penny Boudreaux as the other family members who have been left to pick up the pieces after a senseless crime. Paul and Shane Boudreaux both remarried and think of Carissa Daly. Paul said the following when he was interviewed in 2020 by Crime Beat. Quote, I want to remember my happy-go-lucky girl. She's been in my life every day. She never left. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to this episode of True North True Crime. If you'd like an even deeper dive into this case, we highly recommend checking out the book Mummy Don't by Sherry Aikenhead. If you were moved by Carissa's story, we think it would be appropriate to donate to a local animal shelter of your choice in honor of Carissa Boudreaux's love for animals. That's all we have for this episode. We will see you again soon for a brand new episode. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.